Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2 and stand with me to read God's Word. At Grace Orange, we have been reading the essential 100 Bible passages since September 9th, and today happens to be day 71, if you've been following along. It just so happens that it's Acts chapter 2. So I thought I would preach today on the passage of the E100. So we'll be reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. Lord God, we thank you that you are here with us, and thank you, Lord, that you want to teach us this morning. So, Lord, we want to yield to you, Lord, and to your purposes. Let me pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is Thanksgiving week. So it seems appropriate to talk about Thanksgiving and giving thanks. But I think it's easy when we think of Thanksgiving to, to try and really hard to thank God, realizing that, oops, it's Thanksgiving week. Some people I know have been trying to thank God for something 40 days in a row. And, but sometimes Thanksgiving can sort of be like a parent reminding a child to say thank you. And many of us come into this week burdened and busy and, and wondering and worrying about all sorts of things, and then we realize we need to be thankful. And so we, we throw up a lot of thanks, and I think that's good to be reminded to, to thank, as long as it doesn't just stay on this week or on this Thursday, because God wants it to be more than a tradition. God wants it to be more than Turkey Day or a time to watch a lot of football and be around family and friends. God wants Thanksgiving to be a lifestyle. Now, some people would say, you know, there's only a limited number of reasons to give thanks. Maybe 28 to 38 number of reasons to give thanks. But it's an unlimited number of things that we can thank God for. Today I want you to see something I found in Acts chapter 2 as it relates to thanksgiving. As it relates to being thankful to God. And what we're going to see is what happens when you are filled with the Spirit of God. Christians talk a lot about being filled with the Spirit. What happens when you're filled with and controlled by the Spirit of God. 
What I hope will happen is that we, by the Holy Spirit, will trust God to to do a work in our hearts, to engage us with the heart of this passage, and that we would experience the reality of which it speaks. We're going to be asking several other related questions in context of Acts chapter 2. What does it mean to tell the mighty works of God? What happens when you do so? And how does it come about? So we're in Acts. We've landed in Acts chapter 2, so I want to give you a bit of background. The background is that Acts is Luke part 2, basically. It continues Luke's gospel. You see that at the very beginning of verse 1, in chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. You could really say that the book of Acts is a continuation of all four Gospels because the book of Acts tells what the Holy Spirit did through the apostles. We call, our Bibles will call this book the Acts of the Apostles. Really, you could call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. And the theme of the book of Acts is very simple. It's, it's Christians who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to be Christ's witnesses in the world, to serve God's gospel purposes in the world. Jesus promised them that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And that could uh, form a very good outline of the book of Acts. What happened in Jerusalem and then outward to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. But what was going on here in Acts is that Jesus had promised his people something and they were waiting for what he had promised. What had Jesus promised them? You need to go back to Matthew chapter 28, the very end of that gospel. Very familiar words to those who are familiar with the word of God. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. The Jesus they saw was the resurrected Christ, not yet ascended to the Father, but already risen from the dead. And some amongst the eleven disciples doubted about what had really happened. And Jesus came and said to them, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus had promised that he would be with them. Then go to John chapter 14. Jesus had made a very specific promise regarding the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus had promised that his people would be indwelt with the Holy Spirit. It was something different than what they had already experienced. They had seen evidence of the Spirit's work, external evidence of the Spirit's work. Jesus is promising them that they would have internal experience 
of the Spirit's work. Then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, actually verse 4, Jesus, while staying with them, ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus made a specific promise to them. And then verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So the promise had been made. He had promised them the Holy Spirit. He had promised them his power that they would be filled with God, that they would be used by God. They would be baptized with the Spirit. They would receive his internal power. They would become his witnesses in the world. And what were they doing? They were doing what Jesus had told them to do. They were obediently waiting. They were dependently waiting on Jesus. They were expectantly waiting. In verse 14 of Acts chapter 1, we read that all these, all the 11 disciples, apostles, were in one accord devoting themselves to prayer. They weren't just twiddling their thumbs and and wondering about what might happen next. They were anticipating eagerly what God had promised. When I was a freshman in high school, I had a friend named Joe Gonzalez, whose brother Gilbert had a van. And they would oftentimes pick me up for school and take me to Downey High. And I remember standing out on the corner. They would say, stand out on the corner, you know, be there at 7.30, we'll come by. And I, it wasn't just an empty standing on the corner. I was hoping they would show up because sometimes they didn't. And when they didn't, I'd have to run back home and have my mom take me to school, which was somewhat of embarrassing, of course. And I really wanted to, to show up in the cool van that, that Joe's brother drove. But I was focused. When you're waiting, you are focused on the object of your desire. I was waiting for them. What they were doing here in the book of Acts is they were waiting, they were focused on the object of their desire. They're waiting for God to act. This is what is going on. They're waiting for what Jesus had promised. Now there's an element of waiting that that we see here as well, and it's cooperation. The Bible tells us that there was unity of spirit amongst them. In, In verse 14, they were with one accord together, devoting themselves to prayer. Over in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were together in one place. Verse 14, Peter was standing with the eleven. They were all together. They were unified in their expectation. And it was what Jesus had prayed for them in John chapter 17, that they would be one. Here they were one, and they were waiting. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 tells us it was on a specific day. It wasn't just any day on the Jewish calendar. It was the day of Pentecost. It was a very well-known day to them. It was a day of celebration. But this would be a day of Pentecost that had never happened before and has never been uh, replicated uh, exactly like this since. It was the day of Pentecost. The, The Pentecost, the Greek word is Pentecostos. It's the word 50th. It basically was the 50th day after the first harvested sheath of of barley grain 
Uh, it was the, after the barley harvest. It was the 50th day after the first Sunday of Passover. It was called amongst Jews the Feast of Weeks. It was also known as the Day of the First Fruits. It was commemorating the day when the first fruits of the harvest were presented to God. So on this day, which had significance to Jews already, something happened that had never happened before. Basically, God came through in a huge way on the promise that he had made. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. In fact, it tells us in verse 1 of, of, of Acts chapter 2, they were all together. And then verse 2, suddenly, suddenly. It's, it's like us in California with earthquakes. We can't you know, know that, hey, there's, it's rumbling through L.A. County and it will be here by noon. That's not the way it works, right? You just It happens and you deal with it. You might have an earthquake kit, but you cannot prepare uh, moments in advance for an earthquake. Here they, they were just, they were waiting, they were praying, and suddenly, out of nowhere, comes this sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind. It wasn't a mighty rushing wind, it was like a mighty rushing wind. Closest I can think of is, is the if you've ever been at an airport and you're, you're, you're standing there out on the tarmac waiting for a plane to come or go and you hear the, the roar of a jet engine. <laughs> really loud. I can't do it very loud, but really loud and, and it echoes, it, it reverberates. In fact, the Greek word here for the sound of the wind is, is echo. But God is giving them something, and it's audible, first of all. Uh, verse 2 says they, they heard. They heard this sound. And the sound filled the entire house where they were sitting. It was huge. It was loud. It was audible. It was like a mighty wind. And then God gave them a, a visible evidence of what was going on. Verse 3, divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Not tongues that were real fire, but like fire. If you look at pictures of what people have tried to depict what this scene looked like, you always see it with people with little, you know, fireplace things or little flames on their heads, and it's all neat and tidy, you know. They each have a little, a little Smoky Joe thing on their head or whatever, and it's like, I don't think that it was that clean looking. I think it was scary. Tongues as a fire resting upon them. It was visible. They saw it. Old Testament, fire represented God's power. Fire represented God's presence. God was amongst them in a huge way. But there was also an oral element to this because verse 4 tells us that they did something as a result. They spoke. And they spoke in foreign languages as God spoke through them. I mean, wouldn't it have been cool to be here? Wouldn't it have been cool to see this? This is an amazing uh, there's a lot of amazing things that happen in the Bible, but this is probably one of the most shocking, amazing things that have ever happened. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's what happened. Wow. So what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? What happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit? Let's go a couple places before we answer that question. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Very interesting that they were being accused of being drunk. That was the, 
the only thing those who wouldn't accept that it was God at work, that's the only thing they could say. It seems like they're drunk. What does God say in Ephesians 5 and verse 18? Do not get drunk with wine. Don't get controlled with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. It goes on in verse 19 to say, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You see that there is a direction to um, the activity of being filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And so, tell the mighty works of God. Those who are filled with the Spirit of God, tell the mighty works of God. In, in Ephesians 5 language, it is, it is addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your hearts. So it's being poured out towards God in the presence of others, telling the mighty works of God. What happens when you are filled with the Holy Spirit? Many people will say, well, you speak in tongues. It's very interesting. Uh, There are are some Christians who really overemphasize the Holy Spirit. And if you talk to them, you think, is there a Father and a Son or just a Holy Spirit? And they want... uh, They want amazing, uh, emotional things happening to assure them that God is really at work. So that happens with a lot of Christians. But there's other Christians you talk to, and talking to them, you think, is there even a Holy Spirit? For them, it's like, you know, there's a father and a son, but the Holy Spirit is just forgotten. People filled with the Spirit of God tell the mighty deeds of God. Now, I've been wondering this week, what exactly were they saying when they heard this this amazing thing happening where they're they're speaking in other languages they've never learned? What did they say? You know, if you've learned a foreign language, you know how hard it is. If you've learned to speak English, you know how hard it is. It's very tough and, and, and hard to learn a language, but here, God supernaturally speaks the language through them. They'd never learned the language. They didn't know the language. They're just speaking it. So I'm, I'm, I have to conclude that they didn't know what they were saying. But the people who heard it, verse 5, it says that they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout Jews, from every nation under heaven. So all these Jews are together, people that were born Jews, people that became Jews that weren't born Jews. And it says at this sound, verse 6, the multitude came together because they were very bewildered. They were confused. They didn't know what was going on. What is this? And the reason why is because it says that each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they knew that these men had not learned these languages. So they're, they're astonished and amazed, verse 7, and they're saying, we know where these guys are from and we know where we're from and this is just crazy. What's going on? And what does it say in verse 11? That they hear them telling, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. But we don't know what they were saying. Only those people who heard it know what they were saying. So it's kind of tough. We're like, well, I want to do that too, but I don't know what they said. And it says in verse 12, they were all amazed and perplexed and they said to one another, what does this mean? What is this? What is going on? And there were others who were mocking. 
They were jeering at them. They were making fun of them. They said, they're drunk. They're just, they're just drunk. So how do we know what they said? If we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit and we want to tell the mighty works of God, but we don't even know what they said, what do we do? So the, the, the thought came to me, well, let's just find a place in the Bible where someone is telling the mighty deeds of God and it's in our language, which in this case here is English. And it was amazing to me that I found such a place right here in Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 14, Peter's sermon. Think about it for a moment. Peter stands up, verse 14, with the 11. And you've got to, to, to recognize that this is the Holy Spirit at work. Peter stands up boldly and authoritatively and, and speaks for the group. What does he say? Well, he lifted up his voice and addressed the people that had said, what does it mean, or they're just drunk. And Peter preaches arguably the best sermon of his life. How would you like it if your first sermon was your best? I'm still waiting for my best, but Peter had it right off the bat. It's like everything else is downhill, right? Actually, all of Peter's sermons recorded in Scripture are awesome because the Holy Spirit spoke through him. But this is his best sermon ever. And what does he do? He explains what was going on. What does he do? He tells the mighty works of God. In Peter's sermon, in Acts 2, you have an example in your language of someone telling the mighty deeds of God. He says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. Listen up. Listen up. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, for goodness sake, he says. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He's word-focused. He's preaching a sermon here. He's saying, hey, you've, heard, you've read this in, in Joel. Chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. At that point, they didn't have it uh, split up into chapters and verses. But we know these words that he is about to speak come from Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. He points him to the word of God and says, look, in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter's saying, look, this is exactly what God said he would do. He said, I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, and blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Then he says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who cries out to God for mercy will receive. So Peter is, is, is just... He's bold, he's authoritative, he's centered on the word, but he's also centered on Christ. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth is who this is all about. All the things he said, by the way, cut them to their heart. Verse 37, when they heard all that Peter had said, they were cut to the heart, their hearts were pierced. They were convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin, and they say, what should we do? But let's back up for a moment. What does it mean, then, to tell the mighty works of God? What does it mean? Well, it means, first and foremost, that you are presenting gospel truths, just like Peter did. Gospel truths. 
Verse 22, men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He's preaching the gospel to them, presenting gospel truths. So it means when you tell the mighty works of God, you will present gospel truths. And you will praise the glory of God's grace. He is praising God. Verse 21, it shall come to pass, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know, therefore, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He is, he is pointing out the glory of God's grace. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, in the context of, of not neglecting the salvation that is offered, and then speaking of Jesus as the founder of our salvation, it says in verse 9, we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels while he was here on earth, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, that, he, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The writer of Hebrews is praising the glory of God's grace. Paul did the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1 when he speaks about in verse 3 how God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him and that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and then verse 6 says to the praise of his glorious grace that we might live to the praise of his glorious grace Ephesians 1.14 says the same thing that you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So every believer that comes to faith in Christ is sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, indwelt with the Spirit of God, which it says is the, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So if you're telling the mighty deeds of God, if you're telling the mighty works of God, you are going to praise the glory of God's grace. 1 Peter 2.9 uh, says that we... We're not the people of God, and now we have become the people of God. It says that we are a chosen race, those who come to faith in Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. On all my emails uh, that go out, there is a, a signature line, and it says, All praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. I have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in God's word alone, for God's glory alone. And it's not something I neglect. It's actually something I read when I send out an email. It reminds me to praise the glory of God's grace. When I get an email back, I read my signature line. I love to praise the glory of God's grace in Christ that brought me to faith in Christ. When you tell the mighty works of God, you present gospel truths, you praise the glory of God's grace, and you quite simply preach the good news of what God has done in Christ. You are very specific and you are grateful and eager to tell what God did in Christ. Look at what Peter is, is exposing in this sermon. Verse 22, he speaks of the incarnation. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. God became 
uh, man in the person of Jesus Christ. He speaks of the crucifixion in verse 23. This Jesus delivered up by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He speaks of the, re- the resurrection in verse 24. God raised him up. Down in verse 31, speaking of David, he says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That David, in the Spirit, as the Spirit moved him, he looked ahead to the resurrection and spoke of his Lord's resurrection. He speaks of the ascension in verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He speaks of Christ's glorification in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So you're preaching the good news of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to tell the mighty works of God. So what happens when you do that? What happens when you tell the mighty works of God? Well, let's see what happened when Peter told the mighty works of God. Verse 41 Acts chapter 2 tells us that those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people came to know Jesus. They were reborn. They received the word of God and they believed and were baptized and added to the newborn church. What happens when we tell the mighty works of God? We increasingly become Holy Spirit-powered worldwide witnesses. See, the result was that God's people were potently and cooperatingly used by Him for His purposes. Amazingly mighty things happened. Here here in this situation, 3,000 people were born again by the grace of God. They were trusting God for exceeding abundantly beyond all they could ask or think. God was doing it. You know how many times... I've heard people say, you know, we've got to get back to what happened in Acts chapter 2 and recreate that. And Well, you can't recreate it. Only God can do it. You increasingly, though, become Holy Spirit-powered, dependent, worldwide witnesses. That's what we see recorded in Acts and onward. Verse 47 says, They were praising God and having favor with, favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Those who were being rescued from sin. Those who were being reborn spiritually. And this is not something that they were bored about or disinterested in or disengaged from as if they were like timid house cats or something. They were bold as lions. They weren't weren't withdrawn. They were actively engaged together to do God's will. But what happens when we tell the mighty deeds of God? People are faced with a decision. The reaction of the people who heard were bewilderment and amazement and curiosity and even denial. Well, they're just drunk, trying to explain away what God had done. People are faced with a decision. Verse 37, they ask, Peter, what shall we do? There was this urgency. There was almost a panic as they realized that they were responsible to what they had just heard and they had to respond. They had this awareness of their need. It seems like this belief is brewing in them and they ask, what shall we do? And brought to a point of decision and Peter replies in verse 38, repent, 
The same thing that Jesus preached, the same thing that John the Baptist preached. Turn from your sins, turn to God, trust Him. Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that baptism takes away your sins. Many people who would believe in baptismal regeneration will take this verse and say, look, you believe and are baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. It's believe and then be baptized because your sins have been forgiven. Very clear in other places in Scripture. But people are faced with a decision. What shall we do? Peter says, repent. You look back to verse 21 where he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He's preaching repentance. He's preaching faith in Christ. Many of the people that were there, maybe even some of the mockers, received the word, were saved, were baptized, and were added to the newborn church. That's what happens when you praise the glory of God's grace. That's what happens when you tell the mighty works of God. But how does it come about? How does it happen? Every Christian wants to know how it happens because they want it to happen in their life too. How does it happen? Very simply, very mysteriously, God does it but we want it. God does it, and we want it. We don't make it happen. God makes it happen. We want it, but God does it. Think about all the things that Peter is preaching about all the things that God did. Think about all the things that are recorded in the book of Acts, and especially in Acts chapter 2 here, that it was what God did. All they did is, is obediently wait, expectantly wait for what God had done, said he would do. So how does it come about? Well, God does it and we want it. And also it happens because God's Spirit changes us and moves in our hearts. God's Spirit through His Word changes us and moves in our hearts. Verse 16. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Using the Word of God with them. Verse 25. David says concerning Christ. He's, he's referring to Psalm 16. Verses 8 through 11. Verse 34, he is referring to what David said in Psalm 110, verse 1. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in the lives of the people of God and changes them and moves in their hearts. Peter's sermon was word-driven. It was heart-piercing. Heart change happens when you come to faith in Christ. You become a new person. You then love God and love others. So you resolve, you, you decide that you want to do what God wants you to do. And so it's by God's Spirit through His Word changing us and moving in our hearts. And it's also with our grateful and eager cooperation. You don't go kicking and screaming to tell the mighty works of God. You want to do it with all your heart. You know, spiritual transformation and power is not like getting a new iPhone where you have technology at your fingertips and you can decide what you want to do with it. We can't make spiritual growth happen. We cannot make the Spirit of God move. The Spirit of God uses yielded people and does His work. That day, on that day of Pentecost, people were astonished and bewildered and couldn't understand what was going on because it could only be explained that God had done it. Peter and the eleven could not say, you know, here's, here's our Here's our strategy that we used. Here's our, the plan that we came up with to bring this about. They couldn't do that. They were riding a wave. They were, they were going with God. They were, they were not in control. 
I know that's tough for us to, to, to deal with because we want to make a plan. We want to set out the, the, the way, the steps to get what they got. And the only thing is, is that you are at God's disposal and ready for Him, waiting for Him, and trusting in Him to act with grateful and eager cooperation. Think about their response to God's gifts. Look at verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what did they do? Well, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and, and prayer. They did what Christians do. And it says that awe came upon every soul. They were in awe, not of each other, but of God. And many wa- wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. You know what, though? We latch on to the wonders and signs. We latch on to the tongues. We latch on to the stuff that is, like, exciting to us. But shouldn't it be exciting to us to want the Spirit of God to use us for His glory in whatever way He chooses? All who believed, verse 44, were together, had all things in common. That's their response to what God had done and what He was doing. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day after day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And God was adding to their number what? More and more people that were getting saved. Jesus sends out Holy Spirit-powered worldwide witnesses, cooperatingly used by Him to tell His mighty works. That's a good question to ask ourselves. Am I a cooperatingly dependent servant of Jesus? Or am I an independent contractor? There's cooperation. And it's not just, by the way, me and Jesus or you and Jesus. Uh, it's you love him and then you love his people and you work together with him and them because that's how you uh, don't receive the grace of God in vain. Don't do it on your, on your own. Uh, but a lot of Christians are happy to live with animosity towards other Christians with unresolved issues. It's really hard to tell uh, the mighty deeds of God when that happens. A lot of Christians are happy to live with a disconnectedness to the church they belong to. They stay shallow and don't want to go deep with other people. So you must decide. We must decide. I must decide. Will I live basically complaining or, or thankful? You can't do both, right? Cooperation with God shows itself in the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. Verse 14 of chapter 1, they were of one mind. Chapter 2, verse 1, they were together. The end of chapter 2, they were just all in together. It speaks about what believers are to do when they're part of a church. But what happens? We live in a day of church hopping and church shopping and how many people are, oh, I'm looking for this kind of church or that kind of church. And uh, it's like you're going to the store and picking something that will fit you. You're like pick, buying a new pair of pants or something. Well, here's the thing. Here's how we should live. We should commit ourselves to a group of people who love Jesus and stay together. Like Marriage. That's what body life is like, marriage. You stay together in a covenant. So many people are trashing marriage and so many people are trashing the church. There's a couple reasons why you should leave a church, though. Let me give them to you. If you die, you leave your church. Do not stay. You smell the place up, right? If you die, you leave your church. If you move away to another place, leave your church. You've got to find one close to your house. 
If there's false teaching, leave the church. Go to one that teaches the truth. But a lot of Christians would say, well, you know what? And remember, I want to praise the glory of God's grace and have everything my way. So if things don't go the way I want in my church, I'm going to leave. If I don't like what happened, I'm going to leave. But I want to commend you, Grace Orange, once again. Because we, we, this church is filled with people who get it about what God intends for the church. We are filled with a lot of people who are all in with this local body. And that's the way God wants it. Unless you die or move away or we start teaching error. I praise God to be in a church like this. Gospel changed people who are cooperating with God to serve his purposes in this city and beyond. The people who, filled, who are filled with the Spirit of God tell the mighty works of God. And it's not just on Thanksgiving week or in an empty way of saying, oh yeah, thank you God with all these things. It's in this picture of life in the body of Christ. It's in this picture of being indwelt by God because you have faith in Christ. People filled with the Spirit of God tell the mighty works of God. Let me quickly give you a few encouragements in this regard. Number one, if you think about, first of all, if you think about Peter's sermon, there were past, present, and future elements to his sermon. Here's what God did in Christ. Here's what he's doing now. He even says, the promise is for, verse 39, the promise is for you and your children, and there's a future element for all who are far off, as many as the Lord calls to himself. So, so there's a past, present, and future element to our telling the mighty works of God. So first of all, tell your, your Jesus story. Tell your testimony. Tell how you came to faith in Christ. And don't just do it once when you're invited to speak at a men's study or a women's study. Start with your salvation story and tell your, your family and your friends and your coworkers and keep telling that story. And it shouldn't be like you're a broken record of something that's scratching people's ears, but like you're telling the story you love to tell, like, like the song that you love to sing, the beloved song you love to sing. That's telling your salvation story, your own unique, perfectly timed story of how you came to faith in Christ because of what God did. But then tell what's happening right now in your life. How is God changing you? How is God rearranging your heart go, go to the heart level what is going on in your life right now how can you tell the, the glory of God's grace now but there's also a future element where you say you know what I've got a hope in heaven I've got a hope in Jesus that's an anchor to my soul and I'm going to tell the mighty works of God that haven't happened yet because they're just as sure as the ones who ha- that have because I'm going to be in heaven one day with Jesus and I'm going to be with others who love Jesus forever and and that's the anchor of my soul and it's as sure as what has already gone on because I see it in the word of God. We need to do this more. We need to do this more. We need to, as we're filled with the spirit of God, tell the mighty deeds of God as often as we can. Tell our salvation story. Tell these things to God. Wait on him in dependent prayer. Tell it to the church. Tell it to your family. Tell it to the world and then stand back in awe of what God will do. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you 
are in control of this whole process we are talking about. Lord, we've been thinking about Thanksgiving this Thursday and knowing that many of us will be with people that don't know you and that we want to tell your mighty works, but there's the fear element and there's the, the intimidation element, even the don't say that element. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us boldness and love towards those we are with this week to, in a loving and firm way, share and tell your mighty works. Lord, give us grace to do that today and this week and for the rest of our life. We pray in Jesus' name.